and welcome. Welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And as usual, I have wonderful guests. And yes, I put an S on the end because I actually have two people. So this time I'm excited to say that I have two fantastic people. I'm not really going to do any spoiler alerts except to say that they are actually mother and daughter. But I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And I will start with the person that I know the most, which is Kana Inamoto. So Kana, introduce yourself. Hey, Karis. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Kana Inamoto. I am director of brain health at the McKinsey Health Institute, where I get to do a lot of very cool stuff to advance uh, behavioral health around the world. But where I got to know my good friend Karis is from my time at SAMHSA, where I was acting assistant secretary and principal deputy for a long time uh, and huge fan and supporter of Karis and, and her role as director of consumer affairs in CMHS. Um, trained as a psychologist, longtime advocate and very passionate about mental health substance use. And most importantly, I am mom to a very wonderful, brilliant, uh, beautiful young woman. Awesome. Uh, my name is Raina Chang and I am and, well, I don't have like a fancy title or anything or like fancy degree background, but I am a seat freshman in college at San Diego State. And um, I also am an advocate for mental health as well. Very cool. And you do have a fancy title. It's called student. Okay, <laughs> that is, It is a very fancy title. And you know what? We don't really go by titles here anyway. We're just all people and we're here having conversations about you know, things that are important to us and things that either uh, have impacted us personally or the work that we do. So those are the most important things in these conversations. So thanks for doing the um, introductions. And you know, we really are going to talk about sort of where everybody's focus these days, which is on um, 988 and crisis system reform. That seems to be where the money is, where the conversations are. And of course, you know, changing that national suicide prevention lifeline from a very long waiting 1-800-blah-blah-blah to a 988. I can remember 988. Everybody can remember 988. Um, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what's happening in that world, but more from a um, personal experience. And Kana and Reina were... I'm going to use the word humble enough, I think is the word I want to use, uh, to discuss their personal experiences when crisis kind of showed up in their home. And these are like, you know, folks who do this work, at least for Kana, um, you know, as a as a uh, provider type, if you will, you know, and trained as well as an administrator. So Kana, you know, not to kind of regurgitate everything or rehash <laughs> everything, sort of what was your sense of what was lacking when your daughter um, was having a crisis situation? Yeah, it's, it is humbling. So I appreciate you using that word, Karis, because a lot of times when we talk about what we've been through, people say we're very brave. And when we say it's brave, then we are actually saying that it's something that we shouldn't talk about and that you have to be brave to talk about. And if I had talked about when she broke her leg and we went to the emergency room, people wouldn't say, wow, that's so brave to share that story. Mm-hmm. And what I do recognize is so Raina did have some mental health challenges that resulted in a crisis, got referred to the emergency department. I didn't feel like that's where she needed to be just because I have been in this field for so long. But when I looked in my community, there wasn't anything else. And I felt so much pressure to take her somewhere. And it, it just kind of unraveled into pretty 
unfortunate journey that was not healing. It was not helpful. It was very disempowering. But and and what I think where the part humble humility comes in is that I know that we didn't have the worst journey, right? I had mm. a lot of resources to call upon. I had a lot of friends who could be helpful, and I had knowledge and um, the self confidence um, to advocate for her and for myself. And yet it was pretty crappy experience. So, you know, and I, so I'm humbled in front of other people who I know have much, much worse experiences and, Mm -hmm. and have kids that are boarding in emergency departments for, for weeks or months at a time. Um, And my heart, my heart breaks for them, but I think we're telling our story just to say, this is, this is happening to average people, people with insurance, average people with, these are actually fairly um, common problems and the system's just not set up to, to deal with it. And for you, um, Raina, and I, I couldn't agree more. I, well, first, Khan, I think, you know, I think you're exactly right. And um, I think a lot of times when we talk about mental health or mental health crisis, the belief is it's something happening to those people over there. Yeah, exactly. It's not something that is coming into my home. So I don't really have to pay attention to it mm-hmm. until you have to pay attention to it. Now, I think a little bit different, you know, for, for people who are working in the field, we're paying attention to it all the time. Yeah, for some of us, you know, maybe not for me because I have lived experience, but sometimes it feels like there are numbers that we're looking at and trying to solve for some some sort of numerical thing when it's actually like people. <laughs> and then when we get impacted by it, it's like, okay, wait, what? Now I knew this was so, but wow, this is really kind of different than what I expected. I mean, these are things we knew about that people may not have insurance or that there was uh, ER um, boarding and all this kind of stuff. Was it surprising to you when it actually happened, though? Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. hundred percent. I mean, it was surprising to me when I looked in my county's like directory and couldn't find a mobile crisis team that could serve kids or, you know, there was a crisis respite, but it was only for adults. And I live in a incredibly sophisticated, well-resourced county. Um, and even they weren't delivering kind of best practice care from what I could tell. And it certainly wasn't easily accessible. And when I called my insurance, but they were like, go to the emergency room. So I guess we have knowledge, right? Like from in the field of what this best practice is, but then when you actually need it and look for it and you realize, oh wait, this is not at scale at all. Mm. that that was I was like what have I been working for all these years yeah yeah and uh, and Raina you know was this shocking to you when you were going through your experience and it was like wait I have to go to an ER and you're hanging out in the ER for days and then you know then you end up in inpatient were you in no you talked about tell me about the ER experience I don't want to put words in your mouth so tell me a little bit about the ER experience yeah so I went to the ER I had to go to the emergency room three times. The first time I was there, I stayed there for three days because they couldn't find me a bed in any psych unit. And so I was in the emergency room for three days under like suicide watch. And then I was able to get a bed at an inpatient unit. Mm -hmm. And then for the subsequent times, I was able to get beds almost Within the 24 hours of me checking into the emergency room, I was able to get a bed in an inpatient unit. Um, so right. I went inpatient three times. Yeah. And the other two times I stayed for a week, but the first one I was only in there for a day. Wow. 
So when you're in the ER for three days under that lovely observation, which I have had, so just so you know, been there, done that. I was at a much older age, I will admit, but I always thought of that time as, I hate to say, wasted time. You have me for three days and all you're doing is watching me? Yeah, I definitely felt it was a little bit, well, I felt like I was an exhibit in a museum almost, like I was... Mm -hmm someone to be watched, someone to be observed, but not to be interacted with almost Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like, look, but don't touch type thing. And it was Mm -hmm. very almost, I mean, it's almost, almost dehumanizing. Like they take you to the bathroom. They have to leave the door open. They watch you at all time while you sleep. You're just, you're in a room with a glass wall and they're just sitting right outside. It's like, they're, it's like you're othered almost. And it's really kind of, you just sit there and you don't, have any like of your belongings with you they take all of that away you're not allowed to have guests that aren't family members you're not allowed to like hold a phone or like play cards even yeah like or color it was dull crayons sometimes and (laughs) yeah and like apple juice every few hours but it wasn't yeah I was idle for however many days that I was there and you know, not necessarily bettering my mental health in any way, shape or form through that experience, if anything, making it a little bit worse, just feeling Mm -hmm. so othered and ostracized by the whole thing. Yeah. And I wasn't receiving any treatment. I wasn't talking to any providers or doctors there. Like I was just simply sitting there getting watched by the nurses. Yeah. I think when you're talking about wasted time, Karis, I totally, I can see what you say because basically they, they say, well, they, release the beds like they know the bed census at 11 a.m so the social worker calls all of the available you know the the local hospitals at around 10 a.m and then they find out if there's going to be a bed open that day that that she could get and then if they say no they just come back and tell us like no beds today and then we don't see them for another 24 hours like that's it that's like that Mm -hmm. is the task of the day is for someone to literally make phone calls to other hospitals find out if there's a bed up. If not, we just wait another day. And there's no therapist, there's no peers visiting, there's kind of not really any note of encouragement um, or even a self-help tool to give somebody like just zero. And wow. I know, and obviously we know we can do better. Yeah. I mean, I think when I think of this experience, to me, it's really sad, I'll admit that, you know, I went through this experience years ago, and again, at an older age, but years ago, but I'm hearing you recounting a story, Raina, that was very similar to mine from years ago. So not not much has changed, in other words, which is sort of sad. And how, how was it, like, when we were going through it, is it similarly, like, trying to find a bed, trying to find a, a, a placement? Yeah, I didn't have to stay for that long. I think I was there for a day or two um, in order to find a bed. And during that time, I was in a um, locked room that had a glass window on it. They took all of my clothes and I had to wear like a hospital gown with my little booty hanging out. Okay, my booty's not that little, but it was hanging out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, uh, nobody would come and check on me. And there was a point, I'll never forget this. There was a point where I had to go to the bathroom so bad. And I thought if I scream, they're going to think that's part of my symptomology and they're not going to understand that I'm trying to get their attention. If I bang on the door, they're going to think it's my symptomology. It's not that me trying to get someone to let me out to go to the bathroom. And then I thought, I can't, I can't hold it. I'm just going to have to 
go in the corner over there. And then I thought, no, that's going to be They're kind of written in there. Like everything, everything in my mind was like, everything is going to be written down in this filter of, of, uh, oh, she's here because she's having a mental health crisis. So this has to do with her mental health. And it's like, no, you're not treating me like a human being. Like I got to go pee like, hello. <laughs> right? um, and so finally somebody did come and, um, you know, I just, you know, said, I've got to go to the bathroom. And as you said, uh, Raina, they, um, you know, walk you there. They stay outside. They're they're watching you, and I think for me, I, I kept thinking, what could we be doing at this time? Mm-hmm. Uh, even if an ask were made and I wasn't able to do it, at least somebody asked. You know, would is there something that you would like to talk about? Is there someone you would like to talk to? You know, as far as coloring or you know writing in a journal or anything like that. Nobody asked me anything. Yeah, and then you pay for that. You pay a lot of money to sit there, right? For what service was offered, not really a lot of anything. So I think what I've sort of likened the ER to for mental health, I do not see it this way for medical conditions because that doesn't happen when you have a medical condition um, in that way, right? But um, for a mental health conditions, I think that time in the ER really is just about safety. It's not about care. It's just about keeping a person safe. And I think if we have that understanding, then we don't have, then maybe people wouldn't have an expectation of, well, something should be happening during all of this time. But I still don't even think that's the right way to frame it. It's just a way to frame it so people can kind of understand maybe, okay, I'm here just for somebody to keep me safe. But at the end of the day, does that really aid in somebody's, you know, recovery? And I don't, I don't think it does. And so even to reconceptualize, if somebody comes into an emergency room setting for a mental health condition, what are the possible services and or supports that could be offered to the person and their family member during that time while you're waiting for a vet? I think that's a better way to conceptualize it okay. rather than say, yeah, it's for safety. Right. But even even for safety, right? So Raina also has a really severe nut allergy. And so the other week she had a nut exposure, accidental nut exposure, and ended up in the ER. And yes, it, they were focused on, eventually, they were focused on getting her stabilized and safe, um, but that did involve treatment, yeah. right? So they gave her medication, they observed her, they checked her breathing, and they explained what they were doing and why they were doing it. Yeah. And I feel like uh, on a psychiatric emergency, they're really afraid to do anything. And there are things that they could be doing to help people stabilize, right? Mm -hmm. Like they could send in a peer or just a therapist to check in. How are you doing? How are you coping? How are you feeling? And to help people regulate themselves, even if Mm -hmm. it's, you know, even if they're if they're dysregulated. So just as they gave her what she needed to address her nut reaction, it's not necessarily a long-term therapy for her allergy, mm-hmm. but they did stabilize her before they sent her home. So it wasn't just, we're going to keep you from suffocating to death like that. They don't stop there. They like actually get you to like an equilibrium. Yeah. Whereas they don't do that for mental health. They really just say, we're going to keep you from dying because we're not going to let you do anything. Yeah. Uh, but we're not actually going to try to alleviate any of the stress. And while we're at it, we're probably adding to your stress. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. like, I mean, someone watching you, like they don't ask I, as to my knowledge, they didn't ask, you know, does Raina have a trauma history? Mm. Is it okay for her, for someone, a stranger to watch her while she's in the bathroom? Because they didn't stay outside. They like, mm. we're, we're like the door is open uh, when she's yeah. in the bathroom and they have to keep eyes on her. 
I mean, that would obviously be really difficult for some people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, they, there's not any inquiry like that. So there's not really a sense that they're actually trying to stabilize. They're just trying to get rid of you as soon as they can, which obviously <laughs> can take days yeah. or yeah. Yeah. When we tried to actually have um, peers in one of the hospitals, well, not one, but several here in um, LA and I'm, I'm, you know, I've heard this across the nation, so I don't want to like pick on LA in any way, shape or form, but a lot of times providers and administrators struggle with having peers, uh, people with lived experience who are trained to provide support to others in ER or crisis settings because of the fear of, oh, the peer is going to get hurt. And I had to help help them explain that the peer has been in this situation before. So actually, because they've been in this situation before, it's it's almost like you have this sixth sense. And I don't, that's not really the right way to put it, but you have this sense of, yeah, I know why that person is angry and screaming and yelling and lashing out. And rather than me keeping distant, because sometimes what that person really wants is connection but the behavior um, presents itself in ways that are like, well, I don't want to connect with that, right? But in fact, that's what the person really um, sometimes wants um, in their own way. And so peers are very, very good at that. And so a resource that could be used to help is actually not used because of fear of like liability or you know some other stuff. So I kind of wish we could really expand the use of peers in ER settings and um, when I was helping somebody, not in an ER setting, but an inpatient um, psychiatric hospital setting, I saw so many family members sitting, um, waiting for their loved ones as they were going through the assessment process. And I kept thinking, it'd be so cool if there were a family supporter here talking to that family member, especially if it's a first time, so that the family member could have a better sense of maybe what's going to happen, um, where supports are available for them. And I don't know, Kana, what do you, what do you think? I know my parents never got any orientation to what was happening. It's like, I told them, Hey, I know when I was born, my understanding is kind of the baby comes out, but an instruction book does not come out after, you know? So I'm pretty sure that uh, you did not get an instruction book about many things that would happen in my life, but they didn't know anything. And they called the hospital and it was a payphone. Anybody on the unit could answer the phone. And when people answered the phone, sometimes they had the ability to communicate. Sometimes they didn't. And my parents thought I was dead. That's what they thought because they could never get me on the phone. And then I had to, I'm the one in the hospital and I have to orient them to what's going on. I just wish there were more family support, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine it'd be so difficult. I mean, now that she's 18 too, it would be difficult. I think we have to make sure we do some advanced directives so that, you know, I have permission to call. I mean, you know, God forbid, but um, for anything, even for when she had her nut allergy, you know, like if you're an adult and you can't, the parents can't necessarily get through. But to your point, you know, on the on the adolescent unit, like there was a pediatric ER, and at one point I think there were like three or four kids on being watched, and parents for all those kids sitting around. Which I'm like, this would be a great opportunity to have a. a uh, you know, either a peer supporter for the kids, but the kids are all different ages. So I, I can understand that's difficult, but even a parent supporter in the ER to help people understand what's happening, how to navigate, there's going to be an ambulance transport, you know, like <laughs> if you, these are things that you need to think about when you're thinking about the hospital, which hospital to choose or yeah. what your options are or what, you know, and no one is explaining those things. It's really, I mean, there's a, the social worker is the same one who is calling all the hospitals to find out if their space is available. They kind of come through and 
alert yeah. you to that, but they're not, they're not there to support the parents really. So, yeah. you know, on both sides, helping the parents navigate, giving them information while they're waiting for a long time. And also yeah. something for, you know, the people that are really going through it. Yeah. So Raina, when you think about that experience, like if you had to design something that was completely different, like what, what would, what would you have wanted at that time? I always think about this and think like, well, we talk about it all the time. Like I didn't need an emergency room. I didn't need to go to the ER. That's not what was productive for me. Like that's not what it would, what would have been productive for me at the time. I think something that I needed in that moment was just to get like a reprieve from my house, from the stress, like that built in that specific environment. I just needed some sort of break. I needed like a safe haven away from home for a little bit. And I think that honestly, the hospital was not that, but that is what, that was my only option. But I think that some sort of intermediate like form of care in terms of like a place that I could just go for the night or just go to like talk to somebody and just like stay there for a little bit and then go back home. Like instead of immediately getting rushed to the emergency room, but so just like some sort of place where I could actually just like express what I thought I needed, actually talk to a person and communicate and like get everything out of my like system that I thought I needed to get out and a literal physical place away from home. I think that's what I needed in the moment. Because most people, it's like the environment becomes just so overwhelming and so stressful in that moment. And then you then treat that or fix that, Band-Aid fix that with putting them in another stressful environment that Mm. just overwhelms them even more. And I think that that was just like the antithesis of what I needed in the moment. So you've just described a peer respite, <laughs> I will say. And um, this is, I mean, the words you use just, it's just hearkening back to when I was running a peer run organization. And at the time it was under a um, larger, it was under MHALA. People know where I've worked. I don't know why I'm trying not to say certain things, but it was under Mental Health America Los Angeles. It was Project Return Peer Support Network at the time. And so we were engaged in a lot of the things that um, MHALA was engaged in, like leadership meetings and clinical meetings things like that. And I would hear so often, particularly from clinicians about how they were trying to find a placement for their uh, quote unquote client, because, um, you know, their client was expressing, well, they just need a break. And, And then we would hear in peer groups, I just need a break. I just need to get away. I just need a place where there are no stressors. And I kept thinking, why are we, that's not a hospital. A hospital is not a place where you go for a break. Like literally, <laughs> it's just not where you go. Nobody goes there for a break. I don't know. You go to a hotel, you go, I don't, I know you go on vacation. I don't know. But um, I mean, I do. That's my, that's my uh, sort of a wellness tools. I go to a hotel and hang out, especially a hotel where people know me um, because <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And there's one where it's like, oh, here she is again, <laughs> you know, but it's kind of cool because it's like, they know my name because supposed to it's hospitality right you feel seen you feel taken care of if I didn't yeah if I didn't get breakfast or I haven't left my room um, the people who come around to clean the room you know they'll knock and they'll check on me we haven't seen you are you okay do you want us to get you breakfast you want to I'm like what I mean that's way better and less expensive than a hospital I will just say (laughs) (laughs) but um but but in fact you know you know hotels are not set up for that exactly so that's the peer respite. And I kept thinking, you know, we need a peer respite. And we did open one, um, Hacienda of Hope, 
there's a, a second one in LA to open at the same time. I think there are nine, a nine now in California, 30 some odd across the United States. However, all of them, to my knowledge, are contracted to support adults. So 18 and above. But um, so I wanted to ask something else um, really quickly. But Raina, you started a nonprofit, did you, when you were in high school? You started a particular group. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, so after I had kind of stabilized and left the hospital for the last time, I decided I would start a nonprofit called You Matter that partners with the crisis stabilization program that I worked with when I was going through my crisis. And this crisis stabilization program was through the county, so they worked with a lot of underprivileged kids who didn't have the same resources that I did. And while I was working with them, I saw that I would interact with these kids and saw that they just didn't have the resources that necessarily I had. And they didn't, they weren't fortunate enough to get the treatment and like have access to the treatment that I did. And I saw like that was so ridiculously unfair. Like they are just as deserving of high levels of care and treatment that I was and that other kids are too. And and I thought that the main message that I took away from going through my crisis was that everyone matters equally, regardless of anything. Like you matter as a human being, you matter to somebody around you, like someone cares about you and you need to know that. And so I thought that that message needed to be shared with everyone that I could possibly share that message with, especially kids that didn't have access to the resources that I did. So I started the nonprofit called You Matter, which basically delivers care packages branded with the logo You Matter and the message and a pamphlet of mental health resources, suicide hotline, crisis text line, all those things in like little backpacks with the Yamato logo on it. And I give them to the caseworker that I was with and she delivers them to kids in the crisis stabilization program. And then I sell the sweatshirts separately. I sell sweatshirts to like on a website that anyone can access. And for everyone that I sell, I give one away to someone working with the program. So it's a buy one, give one policy. And then the care package is labeled with like, this was gifted to you from whoever bought a sweatshirt just to Mm -hmm. kind of like make the community more intertwined. So people buying the sweatshirts, it raises awareness. So people buying the sweatshirts know like this is what your money is going towards. Mm -hmm. And also so peers in the crisis stabilization program, they know that like people outside of this also care about you, like people who don't necessarily know you still want you to know this. So that's kind of just my message and hopefully I can continue that work. It's harder in college, but I'm trying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, snaps, claps, thumbs up. That's what I do when I'm like, well, really I want to cry because it's really so um, touching, but what I do is, you know, snaps, claps, thumbs up, because it's just so amazing. And so often, you know, when we find ourselves in these crisis situations or even in hospitalization, who sends you a um, get well card? who sends you an inspirational card or flowers or balloons. I never got any. I never saw any when I um, had my first uh, physical crisis, which was a thyroid issue, thyroid and a parathyroid issue. It was the first time I found myself in an ER for physical issue, very similar to what you're talking about, the nut allergy. And the experience was so different. I was so afraid to go. My father said, no, you have to go. You might be having a stroke. We couldn't figure out what was going on. And so um, like an idiot though, I drove myself there 
because I didn't want to go in the ambulance, like a total idiot. I drive myself to the ER. They're like, how did you get here? I drove myself. So, you know, I went to the back of the line. She's like, she's not so sick that, you know, she couldn't get here. But at the end of the day, I'll never forget when they, you know, said, oh, you know, there's a big mass and we've got to take your thyroid out. And, and they said, I had to stay overnight in the hospital. I burst into tears. I did not tell them about my psych history. I think they knew, but um, I didn't tell them. And I'll never forget when I started crying, one of the nurses, or I guess it was a nurse, put their hand on my shoulder and they said, they said, do you not want to be in your room by yourself? Would you rather, we were really worried about you. You're going to be okay. You know, we'll take care of you. We'll make sure you're okay. You know, this is scary. And I'm like, Nobody ever said that to me. Nobody yeah. ever even touched me when I had a mental health. They didn't even ask if they could touch me. And there was all of this compassion. I think that's the word. A lot of compassion and understanding. This is scary. We're going to help you through it. You're not going to be alone. We'll tell you everything that's going on. Yes, Kana, every single thing. It, it was just like, I was like, wait, what? This is so different. But when I had to have surgery, I got get well cards. I've never gotten a get well card when I had a mental health crisis or was in a mental health hospital, psychiatric unit. I never got a get well card. And suddenly I was like, and I don't give get well cards. Now I do because I understand them. (laughs) I I, I totally 1000% get the get well card situation now. And um, the surgeon was amazing. When I arrived home after the surgery, I had a get well card from my surgeon. You can't policy that. I wish you could. The other thing she did uh, when you're discharged and in Rainy, you can tell me if this happened and it happens, mental health and physical health, you get like a big wad of paper, right? All these things that you're supposed to do where your follow-up is when you're in the hospital for surgery, you get a folder literally with all this stuff in it. And she told me, you know, first of all, you're still recovering. So you're not gonna remember any of this stuff. Here's the folder of all the stuff here's the postcard with the five top things all of my patients have said that they couldn't find, they couldn't remember, that was super important. And on the front was a butterfly talking about sort of this metamorphosis you're going through. And of course the thyroid is shaped like a butterfly. So, I mean, it all was like so perfect. And I'm thinking, how do you policy that? How do you policy making sure that the discharge paperwork is, you know, it's given to you at a time you're still in crisis. You're still working your way out of the thing that happened to you and you're discharged from the hospital with a mental health condition and you get a bunch of paperwork. And the only thing that they want you to really remember is this is your next appointment date. And that's kind of it. And there are other, there's not a lot in there like you were talking about in your um, backpacks. So I think that is just so beautiful that it will change the experience, I think, of people who are in in a crisis uh, service, right? That, uh, and that's the big thing. So I'm going to ask one last thing. Well, it's not going to be the wisdom dropping. We're going to get there. Kana, if you could imagine how things should look right now or could look in the future, what, what would you, what would you want to see? So my dream, which I think is, is not just a dream. It's a goal, right? Like we're going to do this is that everybody, regardless of the type of insurance that they have, will have access to an appropriate continuum of care. Because you know, I don't want this conversation to seem like we're bashing the emergency department or we're bashing inpatient. Like right. those are the appropriate places for some people sometimes, absolutely. And they save lives and they do really have such an important role. But just like we don't send everyone with diabetes to dialysis right away, 
right? There's a whole continuum of care that's available to people who have diabetes, depending on the severity of their condition um, and what they need at the time. And I think that's, that's what we need for mental health and substance use crises, that we have this full continuum of crisis care, that peers are involved, that families are supported, that the people with, with lived experience are feeling empowered, heard, cared for, supported, welcomed, right? And that people understand what's happening and what their options are. And that, you know, it, you know my big thing is that that health insurance <laughs> companies see that this is, you know, it's the right thing to do. I mean, I think it also economically uh, a better path as we've shown with, uh, you know, some of our crisis now and, and other work has demonstrated it's it's also more cost effective, but it's just, it's more human. And I think we'll get to a place where it's, it's not brave to talk about your mental health or substance use challenge. It's normal mm-hmm. and that we care for these people with the same urgency, skill, and compassion as we care about people who are having a thyroid problem or a nut allergy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to add one thing to that. I love that. And um, the other thing I, if I had to say what I wish, I I also wish that we could have the same amount of attention and funding to prevention. Mm -hmm. So I think so often there are things that uh, can be done further upstream to help people so that um, crisis doesn't become the default where they can get the care. Um, And I don't know, I think sometimes you hear prevention is like, well, you can't prevent a mental illness. And I'm not, that's not even what I'm talking about (laughs) right now. I'm just talking about how can we um, create places and spaces where people can, you know, get the support they need earlier on so that hopefully crisis can be uh, diminished. I don't know if it'll ever be eliminated, but I think certainly diminished. And then that's equitable, right? It's equitable regardless of how much money you have, what color you are, where you live. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. All right. So now we're going to do the wisdom dropping. All right. So this is where, uh, you know, each of you get to drop a piece of wisdom uh, for the audience. Like one thing that you certainly want them to know, uh, what would that one piece of wisdom be? And I will start with Kana. I think my piece of wisdom for families who are going through this is that the parents need to take care of themselves also. Because I, I think it can be, it's an extremely stressful experience. I mean, oftentimes we are part of the problem. So it's incredibly guilt-inducing and difficult. So I encourage people to seek out support. We talked about, you know, what kind of parent support offerings there are. For me, it was through individual therapy uh, with like basically a parent coach. But I would say, you know, it's put your own oxygen mask on first so that you can be there and present um, for your for your family member. Awesome. Raina, what about you? I think mine would be mental illness and mental health crisis doesn't really discriminate. It doesn't have a preference of what you look like, what your socioeconomic status is, your grades even. It doesn't matter. I think understand that it could happen to anyone and anyone can experience um, mental illness and mental health crisis and just don't be ashamed to reach out for any kind of help that you may need or that a peer needs or you see a friend struggling with it that they might need because it shouldn't be something that you're ashamed of because it doesn't discriminate it's not saying anything bad about you that you're experiencing that and that just understand that like that doesn't 
make you any less of a person than you were before. And that doesn't make anyone else less of a person just because they have that experience. Yeah. Amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And to our listeners, y'all know what to do. You got to comment, subscribe. Most importantly, though, I think is sharing. You know, people are really sharing just amazing, amazing information that other folks need to hear. So we hope we, uh, that you share this episode with other folks. And until then, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Kana. Thanks, Reina. Thanks, Karis. Take care.